Welcome to the Christy Taylor Show, and I am so excited woo, to be kicking off 2021, my first episode of the year with one of my dearest creative sister friends who I call truly a soul sister. That is going to be my girl, Chandra Kamaria. Of course, she is an amazing writer and playwright, entrepreneur, educator, cultural event planner, she launched her company, Harkins House Productions, in March 2010 and has produced and directed two of her own original stage plays for women and the man store. Now, both productions were highly successful. Now, she was planning to produce her third production, Queen of the Wind, in 2020, but had to stop all pre-production because of the pandemic. Now, she is currently revamping her creative projects and business ventures to adjust to our new reality. I want you all to welcome to the Christy Taylor Show, my sister, <laughs> Shonda Kamaria. Hey, sis. Hello, what's good? Thank you for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We have glided into 2021, and I am super excited to kick this off. Now, of course, we talked for hours. I mean, like we did a phone call recently that was what almost five hours long. <laughs> yeah, we were on the phone a very long time, just kind of trying to, you know, solve the world's problems. Yes. Yeah, so it's gonna be kind of you know challenging for us to condense it into bite-sized pieces. But I first want people to know who you are beyond the bio. Sean mm -hmm. Kamaria, who is she? I'm just a little black girl from Mississippi. <laughs> just a little black girl from Mississippi. Just a little black girl from Mississippi who, wow, fell in love with reading at a very young age, um, like maybe around uh, eight, nine, or ten. I started being very interested in in uh, reading a lot. I read a lot of everything that was around the house from Ebony Magazine to Jet Magazine to, you know, my mom Harlequin Romance novels later on, Essence Magazine and Black Enterprise. She actually got a subscription to Black Enterprise Magazine because I asked her to. And so I just read everything. I went to the library and used to hang out in the library by myself, just, you know, in the library with the card catalog. Most probably don't know anything about the card catalog. <laughs> They probably don't. <laughs> you know, it was it was computerized though. Like they had the, they had they had two kind. They had the kind that you actually had to pull the drawer open and which search is the one I'm more familiar with. Yeah, and then they had the one where you had to sit there at the computer and kind of type it up and then write down the call number. But just hanging out in the library and just reading and listening to a lot of hip hop. You know, coming from Mississippi, it wasn't a lot you know, available in, in the, in the way of having a lot of extracurricular activities, you know, so, um, I just kept myself busy. I love to read. Like I have a very active and vivid imagination and reading helped me with that. And then I started writing. First I started writing rhymes. Like I was supposed to be trying to I was be about to say hip hop influenced you greatly. Greatly. It, it, it influenced me tremendously. And I really, fell in love with the idea of writing when I started trying to write my own rhymes. So uh, that it started from there, writing my own rhymes and kind of trying to be an MC. Um, and then I went from that to writing poetry and then it just kind of evolved from there. Um, 
Now, Chandra Kamaria, do you remember your first rhyme? No. I don't. <laughs> if no. so, I'm going to try and put you on the spot, girl. I'm glad. I'm glad. Can I? No, I don't. I don't remember my first rhyme. I just know that uh, MC Light had a major influence on me. Yeah. Um, she was like, really at that particular, you know, she was really pretty much at that time, honestly, like the female equivalent to Rakim. And so Rakim was like my, is, is in my top five. Like he sits as the number one rapper at the top of my top five. And so, wow. mm -hmm, and so MC Light is, of course, my favorite. Uh, woman, see, and like I said, she was pretty much like the the female version of Rakim. So I was very heavily influenced by MC Light. Um, I, I knew I remember my MC name. No, my MC name was Champagne. And this Champagne. Was, yes, but this was before you know the strippers started naming themselves after liquor. So, oh, well, tell me this. Okay, so as were you MC Champagne? Yeah, I was MC Champagne sometimes with Champagne. And I had a thing about knowing how to rhyme, how, how to spell out my name and make it rhyme like Big Daddy Kane. So I didn't know how to do that pretty well. So I <laughs> what did you find most intriguing about both um, MC Light and Rakim? Rakim. Uh, just the wordplay. The wordplay. Um, you know, the rhyme scheme. Just mm -hmm. how to really uh, frame and you know hook the words together and still makes the delivery uh being able to be both a, a storyteller and a lyricist right just the ability it was just the fascination with how well um you know they took the words and the various rhyme schemes with you know the the, the patterns of the words and the rhyme schemes and then put them together it was just dope. Like, what can you say? It was just something that coming out of the 80s and then growing up during that time where hip hop was really making its way out of New York and starting to spread to the rest of the country. You know, it was just something that it inspired us all. It, it didn't just inspire me, it inspired an entire generation. Mm -hmm. And you know, for those of us who come from that era, we tend to prefer lyricists a lot more than we prefer rappers who are who have the charisma and the personality and just know how to sell records, you know. Um, but that's really what it was. Rakim is a wordsmith, so it's MC Light. You know, they knew how to master the language in such a way. Um, and that mastery of the language was the same thing that I saw, like it ran parallel to a lot of the um to a lot of the people that I was reading as well. Right, that's true. Like uh Naylor and James Baldwin and Tony Morris. Gloria Naylor. Mm -hmm. Gloria Day. Naylor. Mama Day. Oh. Lyndon Hills. Uh, yeah. The women of Brewster Place. The men of Brewster Place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all of those those uh those novels. And it's kind of how your ability to tell a story, just that mastery of language was something that always impressed me. You know, just that ability to just take that language and take those words and to express them and to link them together in such a way where it really drew you into what they were saying. Because, you know, reading is a different experience than watching something on the television. Right. Um, you have to use words to, to create the images in your mind as opposed to the images presented for you on a TV. 
Chandra, one of the things I know about you is that you are masterful when it comes to words and to naming things. And of course, I can definitely see, of course, a lot of those who've influenced you. But when it came to, like you said, rap was spreading from the East Coast, which of course is based in the griot culture and jazz and storytelling, right. historically speaking. Sure. To begin to migrate into the dirty, dirty, the dirty South, Mississippi included. Yep. Came some of your more regional influences when it came to storytelling through the creative arts. Outcast. Outcast. Outcast, uh, A Ball and MJG, who doesn't really get as much credit as they should. That is so true. For uh, really being very influential with putting the South on the map. As a matter of fact, A Ball and MJG came around before Outcast, right? And so um, Outcast took it further than A Ball and MJG, but still, A Ball and MJG were the ones who honestly were like something of the pioneers or the forefathers of what became, um, you know, Southern hip hop. The UGKs was a big influence on me too, because I love the UGKs. Um, but definitely those three duos were the ones, are the people that inspire me the most. Right now, um, I am 100% in love with Big Crit, um, largely because you know he's from Mississippi, from Meridian, which is like not too far from my hometown. Well, that's a couple of hours south of my hometown, but definitely Big Crit, who I feel like is continuing in the actual tra- in in the fa- in the tra- in the tradition in the in the groundwork that was laid by A Ball and MJG and the UGKs and Outcasts. He's continuing in that. Yeah. Now, of course, that's a big jump between because those artists that you're speaking of really were reigning in the '90s to now bring that up to what is now becoming, you know, the early tw- 2020s. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen and felt a void over the last, let's say, 20 years? You know, to- you know what? I, I used to be a diehard, you know, hip hop purist. Yeah. And um, that's still in me. Like, I still would prefer that all of the MCs that come out really understood the history of, of hip hop and really better understand the shoulders that they stand on. Um, and a lot of the, what I'm starting to see, honestly, is I'm starting to see a return to that. At one point in time, it had got very ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah, it had. It, it had got really ridiculous. And it was just like, people were just showing up out of the woodworks and just opening their mouths and getting on the record and saying anything. And you could literally tell that there was no, there, there was no, there was no, there was a disrespect in a sense. They weren't trying to pay homage mm. to anybody. Um, it was literally about, I just want to get in here and make some money. Uh, it's commodified now and it's commercialized. And I can right. just go on the record and just say the worst, you know, the most ridiculous stuff ever. And somebody going to feel it, right? Because it had become very mainstream. Right. Um, and it, it, it did. It had gotten ridiculous for a long time. But now... I feel like now there's a lot of MCs like your Kendrick Lamars, um, like your J. Coles and all of them who are actually trying to stay true to the actual culture. So it seems like it's trying to make its way back around to, you know, the actual storytelling aspect and the actual lyricism. Like somebody's actually putting some thought to what they're trying to put on the record and what they're actually trying to say. It's interesting that you name those because I personally, you know, though I'm not a hip hop head, um, 
you and I joke oftentimes that while you were, you know, and my brother, he's he's you know, he's a little bit older than you, but he definitely was a hip hop head. He was even into break dancing, all that. The church out on the hip hop revolution because as you will say I was what? You was at the church. <laughs> yeah. I mean even before holy hip hop I was in the church. I was you, you, you were holy rolling. You were I was holy rolling. I was holy rolling. However, I have come to really appreciate, you know, of course having, you know, at some point in my life moved into media, radio and having to be exposed to a lot of right. Um, <laughs> I personally like this this new vanguard of of, rap, of rappers and hip hop artists, and J Cole is actually one of my favorites. Him and Black, I love them, and I love their storytelling. And then when I do, I love that too, I love him, and I actually have found myself, and thank God for YouTube, because I can now do uh, a lot of my research of what I missed out on. <laughs> And you know, now I will say this: that even in the late '90s, I did. Ooh, let me tell you who I did slip and listen to. Of course, Will mm-hmm. Smith. I did love him early on. LL Cool J. Yeah. Big Daddy Kane. But let me tell you, I was in love with to the point that I knew his real government name. Yes. Hardy. No, Heavy D. Oh, Heavy D. I thought you were talking about Big Daddy Kane. Okay. I was giving no, you. No, no, no. I was, no, I loved, I've loved Will Smith, LL Cool J, Big Daddy Kane. You know, I would like if I hear their music, but who I actually started buying their cassettes on the okay. low was Heavy D and the Boys. Heavy D and the Boys was, they were very approachable. Like they were the kind of hip hop that you could actually play around your mama and not get in any trouble. And that's mama, probably why I could handle it. <laughs> my mama loved Heavy D. Like my mama thought that Heavy D was the cutest thing. Wow. She thought that he was just amazing. Like she loved the we got our own thing and everything. Because yes. that's what it was. They were the kind of group that you can actually play around your parents and yeah. everything. So yeah, I understand that. They were they were they were mainstream, but they weren't bubblegum. But they were still, you know, the kind of, of artists that you could, like I said, it was more, they were more family oriented and it wasn't a lot of cussing and it wasn't a lot of drug dealing and all that. And he had amazing storytelling and wordplay. Amazing. Yeah. He it, it was more handsome, if you will, and, and for yes. the better word for them. Mm-hmm. So, you okay. know, just say, folks, you can get away with listening to Heavy D and the Boys. <laughs> well, I got away with it. I, and I have a lot of his cassettes, and I actually learned his name. And at some point when I was living in Detroit years ago in my 20s, I dated a guy because he reminded me of Heavy oh, D. Heavy D. See that? Real look. story there. Real story. Because I wasn't into the light complexion back in the day. But I actually broke my color bias because of Heavy D. Oh, Heavy D. How about Heavy that? D, honey? How now that we found love, what are we gonna do with it? Come on now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My now, favorite song about, about Heavy D and the Boys is "Got Me Waiting." Ooh, oh, oh my God! Yes, that whole cassette. Well, did you see the cassette and CD? Yes, I said cassette. But yeah, I was, I was, I was gonna let you slide on. I had to say cassette. That's what I bought. I know that's what you bought, girl. But you know, we're all the way up to MP3s. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We all the way up to streaming now. Like I don't even. Right. We don't even download, right? 
right. Who buys music these days, you know? So I know who buys it. Now tell me this. Okay, now we're talking about those 90s and we're talking about all of the ones that contributed to that, both around, you know, the East Coast, Dirty South. And you talk about there being a period of time that seemed like anybody would jump on the mic and say anything. Now, oddly enough, you have not discussed the West Coast influence. So were there no yeah, yeah. that in, that imp impressed you? Oh, absolutely. Um, but you asked me about my region. You went, you know, we talked about New York first, then we went to my region, and now we can go ahead and go to the West Coast. Okay, know? let's go West Coast. Let's go um, West Coast. Yeah, um, I really love DJ Quick, and I really love it's as misogynist, as misogynistic as it may sound, as a lot of his music may be. Um, DJ Quick is one hell of a producer. Yes, produce his 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 ear for music and stuff is really is really pretty deep. Um, I loved uh, the Far Side. She keeps on passing me by. That was my group. That's my group. Um, Digital Underground. Yes. Uh, oh, and of course, you know, uh, in, uh, NWA. Yes, gotta give respect, all the respect. Mm -hmm. You know, and even though, like I said, I wasn't like deep into you know hip hop in its origin years, mm -hmm. just the political uh, insight that they provided that literally was causing. I remember when Sister Soldier uh, mm -hmm. was raising Cain, and her existence was elevated because um, Bill Clinton. Was I think he was running for re-election? Yeah, they put her in the spotlight, but she she was uh, very forthtelling, mm -hmm. and a lot of things of that whole generation they really were insightful to what was already happening in the uh, in the ghettos of America, in the hoods, in the and now it's been amplified, you know. And they were what we consider true griots. Yeah, um, native, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh no, go ahead. No, I was like, go ahead, finish that thought. I want because I want to jump in this transition to mm -hmm. uh, the literary aspect of you. But um, yeah, when it comes to the fact that creative profits, really. Mm -hmm. I think um if there's anything that I really want hip hop to do a, a to do now, current hip hop is to really um is to really tap back into being um the voice of the people. Uh, I'm not to say it's not to say that it's not happening, but I would like to see it on a grander scale. Um, they have to understand when you speak of them being the griot or the, the storyteller, what have you. I don't know that all of them really understand the significance of what they do. I think that it's one thing to know how to rap. It's one thing to know how to, you know, be an MC or whatever, but. I, I do know that there is a need for more social commentary um, within the art. And I would just like to see more of that because, you know, the conditions in which we live in are really not that much different than they were 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Um, so we still need to have the voice of the community still being spoken 
by those of us who are who are who are pretty much like the cultural translators, and that's your artists. Your artists are your cultural translators. Everybody can't do it. We get that. Um, you do need your people. You do need your artists that are also uh, all about the partying and the and the, and the BS. Right. But you need a healthy balance too, and a harmonious balance of these artists who are just talking about weed and money and women. And those who are literally trying to make a statement and they, they all need to be equally exposed. Right. That sense. Does that make sense? It like, makes a lot of sense because of course, historically speaking, yeah, historically speaking, we had a balance once upon yeah. a time. We had the artist that we knew was going to be somewhere kind of being like the hood news reporters for us. You know what I'm saying? And they were the ones that were speaking for us as well. You had your, your KRS ones and you had your public enemy. Right, but then you also had your two shorts and your E forties and your DJ Quicks, who at the same time was still giving you a piece of what life was really like. That's you know, right. You had a wide range of things that was going on. Like you really understood uh, the generational, our generational experiences as Black people from the from the from the gamut of artists that we had available. You know what I'm saying? So we had like a wide range and like right now it just seems like it's a little too uneven and I just want a little bit more of a balance but we're seeing more artists who are more uh, about social commentary and they still get the same level of exposure as our brothers. And I like the fact that you talked about the, the exposure piece because of course a lot of that plays into the commercialization of music period. Mm -hmm. And speaking, we do know that anytime the capitalistic nature of America seeps into any form of art, it does begin to sanitize the message, the focus, the artistry. And I think that that's another reason why I'm really, really grateful for this new vanguard of musicians and singers and writers, period. Right. And I'm going to speak about black music, mm -hmm. um, that there are a lot of artists who probably were born <laughs> in the 90s in early 2000s who have really, if I'll say picked up the, of the mantle of artistry in every genre of black music. So I'm really, really grateful that there is that connection. And I do know that historically um, it takes oftentimes things that are happening in social, the society that, in, that puts a lot of that. So, um, and speaking to that aspect of culture, I heard you use that word and I know you're big on, culture and not just doing it for the culture, but literally fostering both the past, the present to create a future. Exactly. To the literary people. Now we talked a lot about the hip hop influences, which of course I know um, nurtured you as a artist and as a writer and you are a playwright. So I know with the music being the soundtrack of your life, there were also, as you say, the books you were reading. Who were some of those authors as well as playwrights that you began to be drawn to as you've been nurtured uh, by hip hop? Uh, Tazaki Shange, uh, my first, uh, my first theatrical production. That let me see, let me see how I want to say this, because I had been to plays before this, but the one that really struck me was the production of. The Color Girl Who Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. Uh, it was done by, I think, the Black Student Association back in 1994. I'm telling my age. Um, 
at the University of Memphis. And I just remember just really being immersed into the dialogue that was happening, well, the monologues that was happening with each one of the women. It was well acted. You know, uh, there was, these were, it was done by college students who were going to the school, but they did a really beautiful job of, uh, of, of portraying those characters. Um, and then, you know, just kind of really going and studying more about Tazaki, Tazaki Shange as a playwright. Um, I really discovered her first as a playwright. Then I learned later that she was pretty much a poet and a novelist. Uh, but she was the first playwright that literally, that really stayed with, stayed with me. And I just couldn't get out from under her influence. Like she really influenced me greatly. And as you know, she is also very profound and a master of words and a gifted storyteller and just know how to really um, speak from a very deep place mm -hmm. in her work and then present it to you in such a way where it'll resonate with you. May she rest in peace. I totally want to take this moment and acknowledge her spirit and her influence on a lot of us, including a lot of those that grew up in hip hop. Yep. She was a, a mother poet. And yeah. I totally, as a poet, as a writer, as a creative, you know, there were so many who came. I'll even go back as far as the Harlem Renaissance that really influenced us, whether we knew it or not. Yep. Once we began to be introduced to their works in the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, how much of an influence they have been. Mm -hmm. um, now, you spoke about that one play, University of Memphis. And to be able to have the testimonials of women and their stories, which I know has always been very um, important to you in your own work. What particular character in that particular um, production or work spoke to you the most? Ooh, I know. It's so many layers. Um... The woman in green. And I think, see, I can't pick one. I just remember, I just remember certain pieces, certain dialogue from the production that sticks with me all the time. Um, being a woman and being colored is a metaphysical dilemma that I haven't solved yet or I haven't conquered yet. That was, you know, it was the lines, the way that she was, oh my God, who, you're stomping me now because I can't pick one. I really can't pick one. I do know that I love the one, the, the poem about, the choral poem, because that's really what they were. They were choral poems. And I really like the choral poem about somebody don't walk away without my stuff. Yes. And how it speaks to, you know, this experience of being a woman, specifically a black woman and being in love or to be in love and having a man in your life that kind of shows up and take you out of yourself and take you out of yourself to the point where what you have, the things that you have that are supposed to be yours, who make you who you are, end up getting put to the waist, put to the side. It's almost like they do it. It's a theft of certain kind. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't even know who I am anymore when I'm with this person. So somebody mm -hmm. walked away with all my stuff and I'm like, where he going with all my shit? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. That spoke to me. Um, 
Wow. And then, you know, the very tragic story about Bo Willie Brown. Yeah. That was something mm -hmm. that was, yeah. And then, you know, the, the line about I found God in myself and I love her fearfully. Yes. You know, so it's just different lines. It, in each one of those horror poems, there's something in the, there's something, there's a line in there that's going to stay with you every single time. You know, there's no one. That's why I'm like, I can't pick one woman or one specific core poem because each one of them literally has something in it that I was able to take with me and say, that's mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. like I put that and it resonates deeply with me. And this is something I need to spend some time wrestling, toying with, and really trying to better understand about my experience as a black woman. So pick just one, really. It's one it's something that makes, that's what makes it so amazing. That's what makes it so amazing. I and that's what makes it a masterpiece. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's something she she debuted. She debuted the production in 1978, and here we are in 2020, and people are still doing productions of it. That's right. It, it just won't go anywhere, and it shouldn't. Ever, it, ever. Ever. I agree. Yeah. Now, Shandra Kamaria, I am so glad to have you here with me on the Christy Taylor Show, and we're going to now segue in just a moment on how all of this hip-hop and amazing masterful writers, poets, and playwrights have influenced your work and the launch of the Harkins House. We'll be right back after this. Kamaria, and we have been really engaging in a very one of our heady conversations about the influence of all things creative. In her case, hip hop, amazing, masterful writers, essayists, playwrights. And I kind of want to jump to Shonda Kamaria as a creative herself. Now, of course, you went to the University of Memphis and you majored in. I majored in marketing management. <laughs> I love that because the journey to your creative expression and artistry. Woo. Okay. How can we condense this story? I'm just going to say that I was writing. I love to write. I really wanted to write for a living, but I was literally terrified to try. So I had to do it was the same thing like with me being a rapper. Like I was like, I can't be a rapper coming from Mississippi. No one is going to take me seriously. And then, you know, going to college, I needed to get a degree so that I could get a job. So, you know, it was all about just really trying to follow the social formula because you hear all of the all of the 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 the, the negativity about trying to pursue a career in art and how you'll be broke and starving and stuff like that. So the, the, the long story, the, the long story made short is that for a very long time, I was just terrified to do anything uh, with my writing. It was just something that I would do at home. Um, I would only let my friends see it. 
never really want to try, you know, wasn't really afraid and just scared to put it out there and let people, you know, see it, strangers or whoever. Um, and I just went to college and got a degree so I can get a job. And, and, that's what mm -hmm. and, and oddly enough, one of the jobs that you took um, led you into the entertainment industry in some form or fashion. Uh, let's talk about that. I started working at radio. <laughs> I started working at radio. I worked for Clear Cloudy Channel. No, I'm just playing. Clear Channel. <laughs> started working for Clear Channel Communications. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All the stories. All the stories. And at that time, it was uh, WHR. Let me get my radio voice. <clears throat> it was WHRK, K97 FM, KJMS, Smooth 101 FM at the time. It was smooth. Is it still was good? Is it still smooth 101? You know, I don't remember. It's V101 now. See what I'm talking about? See, I don't even remember, you know, because I'm listening to the radio. Isn't that crazy? But anyway, it was KJMS, Smooth 101.1 FM, WDIA, the oldest. Uh, African-American station in the country, WDIA, 1070 AM, and at the time, KWAM, AM 90, The Light, which is now WHAL, Hallelujah FM, 95.7. Graduation, baby. Yeah. So that was the cluster of stations that I worked for. I was in the sales department working as a sales assistant. Um, met you. because <laughs> we, we But before you met me, though, because yeah. I took your job. Well, you took your job, and that's how I got it. And Kyle myself tried to move into working for an independent record label. Oh my God, that's that seems so long. It was a long time. It ago. was long ago. That was 1999 is when I actually received a call early that year. Michael Adrian Davis is a an integral part of this story because I had met him when I, um, you know, the whole DC. Tipton County, Millington, went away to school, ended up in Detroit, came back in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. I was working at a station, and that's where I met Michael Davis. And years later, about six years later, he, you know, gave me an opportunity to do some voice work that led to me starting that spring of 1999 on yeah. weekend on 990 The Light. But then when I got a call from Frankie Edwards. Frankie. Hey, Frankie. That she was losing her sales assistant. I know if I wanted the job because she had heard about, you know, my, in, you know, the fact I had some experience in that. And I think I had two or three days with a young lady who was leaving and she was rapidly training me because she was ready to go. And that turned out to be Chandra Harkins. And it's so funny because who would ever think that we would, our paths would cross years later and become friends because you literally just was leaving a job. I was. And we had no other interaction past those two or three days of training. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think that that's... The portrait, I think it was the portrait scene that... Was it Precious? I don't know how we reconnected. Ain't no telling. I mean, like I said, this story has so many different layers to it. So many different... It's not so, not so much so many moving pieces. I don't think that we had a lot of moving pieces. I just think it was so long ago that we kind of forgotten. Because well, I can say this that I started I started at Clear Channel on 990 The Light on the weekends that May. By yeah. September, I received a call saying, Do I will I be interested in the sales assistant position? Because the current sales assistant is leaving to go back to grad school, which was a 
it was a stretching of the truth. You you had done you had you were working on a master's, but that was not your full reason for leaving. No, it turns out. <laughs> However, I think it that would be the fall of '99, and I think we and ended up reconnecting around the precious cargo years, maybe. Well, you know, Precious Cargo came up in and around the time when uh, Love Jones came out. So we're talking about around '96 on up up through to '99. Yeah, so that's that's probably about right during the Precious and, Cargo era. Yeah, and then I think at at some point we we met again, mm-hmm. and Twitter was I know Twitter became a part of that story, and it was around that time you were working for you had done the independent record label with the name that we would not drop. We but, will not. We but the but by the time I reconnected with you, you were working in corporate America, or should we say, the corporate slum? Yes, I was there. <laughs> and somewhere in that time, which would have been the mid two thousands. Yeah, you had started writing. I was. Yeah. I okay. So, yeah. I I think. You know, we definitely when you talk about Precious Cargo, so there was the poetry scene, right? Yes. So there was that poetry scene that was really popping off at that time. Um, And I was a a poet and I knew it. And that that was the time when I was patronizing the poetry scene and really getting, and you know, by working in radio, you start running into all these people who are involved in the art scene, right? So you start running into all of the singers, all of the rappers, all the producers, all of the writers, all of the all of those folks, and started, you know, just kind of moving around in those circles and everything. So I started meeting a lot of people, and I think that's pretty much how we reconnected because we were just in that scene, moving around in that circle together. And so, and knowing Chandra, she probably came up to me saying, "Do you remember me? I trained you for that job." You know, something I don't even really know specifically how, but definitely because we were just involved in that whole yes. circle. And being involved in that whole circle, we were just bound to run back into each other again. And that's what we did. Um, and then, you know, I just started coming up to the station and visiting you while you were on the air and things like that. It just kind of went from there. And I think we pretty much, because we was all, we always been idea people. Like every time we get together, we're always talking about ideas. We're always talking about stuff that we want to see happen. We're always trying to do something. So it was just that kind of connection where every time I saw you and every time you saw me, we would start politicking and we would just start talking about what we wanted to see and what we were working on. And that just kind of really went from there. That's how it really built itself. So beautiful union because a lot of the things that we would talk about at first, we were like, oh, we wish this was happening here because I love Jones is my favorite movie. So a lot of the art, artsy work that was coming out in those late 90s and early 2000s, you know, because we had done the Boys in the Hood, you know, bang, still birthing out of hip hop. But then we started moving into Black romance and Black love, you know, works. And for a lot of us in the creative circles, we were like, oh, oh, I wish we could have that in Memphis. And eventually two things happened with you specifically. Um, I think corporate America, corporate slums was draining your creative energy. And you created an opportunity or even a, well, let's just talk about Harkins House. You started saying, instead of us talking about it, we both, I think by the mid 2000s, like, let's start making this stuff happen. Yeah. So uh, Harkins House was founded in 2010 and I was still at the corporate slum Mm -hmm. at the cubicle farm, uh, just wasting away. 
you know, <laughs> feeling. And the conversations I was, and I was in radio. Mm-hmm. Never, a lot of my creativity is way beyond the microphone. So I could hear you like, oh, and I was like, oh my God, how can my friend get free of this? Because it's like it agonizing. It was agonizing. It was, um, let me see, where was I working in 2010 when I started? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. I don't, have a problem. I don't have a problem with saying the name. I don't. Like, right. You know, I won't say the name of the record label. That'll remain nameless. But, you know, in 2010, I was down at AutoZone and I was wasting away at AutoZone. Um, I don't have no problem with telling people that. Like, I worked at AutoZone Corporate for about seven years. Whew. I also went back to grad school. I did go back to grad school. And actually, by the time 2010 came around, when I started Harkins House, I had finished my master's degree. Because I think I got my master's degree in 2007. And so my whole goal was working on how to transition out of corporate America because I knew it wasn't for me. And I knew that I didn't want to continue to wake up every day and go into a job and sit in a cubicle for eight hours. And um, literally just knew that I was, I, I was, it was, I was more than that. You know, and so Harkins House came about as a way of really kind of, of just stretching out and giving me something that was that it was therapy for me. You know what I'm saying? It was therapy for me to write. I was still writing. And then I was like, you know, it's just time to go ahead and see what I can do with this. And I knew that being a playwright here locally and not really having a lot of opportunities available to me to be able to shop a play and do a do a workshop and all that kind of stuff. And I was also, I've always been very protective uh, of my creative work and I've always wanted to remain in creative control. So I just said, this is something that I'm gonna do on my own. And at that time, my timing couldn't have been better because once I started Harkins House and after I had finished writing for women, the Evergreen Theater, um, came on board. Like they launched the Evergreen Theater as a community theater that was available to people like me. And so I was one of the first people to actually do a production at Evergreen Theater. And I I um I debuted for women in November of 2010. And it was a pretty profound, not profound, it was just a very what's the word I want to use? It was something so you know, something so predestined about it all because yeah. in 2010, it was like the color girl that came out as a movie. Yes, yes, that's so true. and they had, Perry. yeah, they had just debuted Black Girls Rock on television. So, Black Girls Rock had debuted in November of 2010 for Color Girls that came out, and then my play for women had debuted. So, I just felt like I was a part of this this larger sweeping artistic wave that was happening at the time. And it just was very validating for me and letting me know that this was something that I was supposed to do. And I was like, this is beautiful. Put the play on, uh, pay for the theater out of my corporate money. <laughs> That's what they're good for. You know what I'm saying? So I just really used that money to fund my dream, you know, to really yeah. fund the production. Um, the company, I was like, I'm gonna do this through my own company. Um, everything was just sweat and equity. You know, it was sweat equity rather. That's the word I want to use. It was sweat equity. It was just moving on passion. Everything paid for itself by passion and sweat equity. And that's how that play got done. And I did it again in 
August of 2012. And I then I had to do then I had written another play, uh, the main store. I had started it, I think in 2012, late 2012. And then it was ready to go. And I debuted the man store in May of 2013. That's right. Mm -hmm. And then I did it again in November of 2013. Of 2013. And it's interesting because at some point um, in 2008, I left radio. And in the spring of 20, of 2009, like by May of 2009, I had returned back to Oral Roberts University. So from 2009 to around that time, I was between Tulsa and LA, but we kept in touch. Mm -hmm. Yes, social media, Skype, eventually Google Hangout. Twitter. We had some Twitter friends. We started a, a writing club, a writing lab club, and it was very, very productive. And we're about to resurrect that in 2021. Absolutely. Yep. Got to. But what was beautiful was the timing of when I came back home, you were restaging the man store and you even said, okay, Christy, um, can you open up? Yeah. You hosted it. Yeah. I was like, sure. And when I tell you when I watched it, I was like, this is worthy of Broadway. It is worthy of <laughs> a national, a national tour. It just amazing work. And I've always said, as we um, had become writing friends, writing sisters, via long distance and, 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 and Skype, and that you write like molasses. Oh my God. And you're like, why do you say that? I was like, it's just so thick. It's like when I grew up in Tipton County and they would make, especially on the weekends, and they make that big breakfast, that homemade biscuits yeah. and that molasses straight out the tree. and with that rice and salmon. And it's like, girl, your writing just feels like a hearty, I mean, just beautiful family, but sensuous, um, spiritual, mystical, just so much of your work is, yeah. is black magic. It's black girl magic. It's black magic and black girl magic. It's, it's, it's our power in a very beautiful, sensuous way with a lot of intellect. It's like the, the best of ourselves at its rawest. I, that's the best way I can say it. Um, I appreciate that because that just speaks to, that speaks to what I'm really aiming for. Like I want to write like the people that I idolize in a sense. Like I wanna, I wanna have the same kind of, you know, effect as a Toni Morrison, as a Gloria Naylor, as a Tazaki Shange, as an Alice Childress, as a Zora Neale Hurston. So I, 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 I try to, um, and I know that that comes from, in one part, just really knowing how to um, master the language, of course, knowing how to string the sentences together, like the actual technical writing part. But it also has to come from the heart. You got to write from your heart and your soul. And you have to be okay with being vulnerable. And you have to be okay with allowing yourself to explore whatever you need to explore within yourself and then just make it happen through your, write, through your writing. I think a lot of us sometimes when it comes to our art, we hide. And that's the wrong place to go. Like if there's any place where you should be completely exposed, it should be through your work, through your artistic work. Amen. Amen. I love it. Now, speaking about your work, you have um, had a chance to do a stage reading. 
I did. Yeah. In 2020, you had a staged reading of a work that, as I've been doing some script consulting, you know, oftentimes I read people working. I'm like, oh God, oh God. <laughs> and you sent me something just as a, hey, Christy, check this out. This is something I wrote. And when you told me the, the time frame, it was such a compressed amount of time that you took to write it. And yet it was perfection. And I was laughing and crying and just deeply moved by that work. Uh, let's talk about that. And then I want to find out what you're going to be doing in 2021. So that work is called Queen of the Wind. Um, it was, I wrote it in 24 hours. Um, it was, it was, it was therapy for me. It was a catharsis of sorts because I had just experienced um, a personal situation here in my home. My home was uh, vandalized in April of 2017. And um, as a way of kind of coping with that and, and other things that was going on in my life, I just started writing and it, it just came to me and I just wrote it and it just, it just flowed out and I didn't stop it. Like I just, it just literally just came and I just wrote it. It was nothing. It, it, it didn't have a, uh, I didn't know I was going to write it. <laughs> I didn't have no preliminary idea that I was going to write it. I didn't have no character in mind when I wrote it. It just, it came to me one day and I just sat down and I just started writing and I couldn't stop writing until it was finished. And I wrote it within 24 hours. And it was a done deal. And I was like, okay, read this. It was perfection. Yeah. It was, that was one of those moments when you, as a creative, you have allowed yourself to be conduit to the infinite creative one. And you really surrender to that. It was also at a time that I think you were surrendering to the full journey. Mm -hmm. Not only were you trying to be a playwright and had stood up your own, you know, production company, but you were like, I'm going to make this a career, even though you had made some, you know, career changes professionally from corporate to education. Yeah. I think it was, it was really like, even now, like a midwife in your life, Sure. which I yeah. know is some of the things you're going to be moving into as we get into 2021. Some of the things you have written down and we've talked about, Ooh. let's look forward to discussing that and seeing what that's going to be like. So what is one thing that you can, in our wrap up, share with us that can be shared? That can be shared. Yeah. That can be shared. Yeah. I'm working on something called the literary light worker. And the literary light worker was something that just, again, you know, I remain just very open to, you know, how do I how do I explain this without it really sounding so so extra deep? I don't think there's any other way to really explain it. Like I remember, I was I'll do this and then I'll go back to that point. I remember watching Toni Morrison's documentary, and I remember her saying that she was struggling with a character and a story that she was working on. And Toni Morrison lives in this house that's out by a body of water. She did, and she said that she looked out her window. And she saw a woman come out of the water and she described the dress that the woman was wearing and she described the hat. And she said this woman sat down on this bench that was out in front of her house. And that's how she got the answer that she needed for the story, Beloved. And I just remember being, I was, I remember being very inspired by that and very, and I, I felt very uh, assured. I was like, oh, good. 
So wonderful. Now I can actually go around and tell people too that I feel like it's an ancestral thing when it comes to me and my writing. Like I really do feel like there are ancestors explaining these stories to me, giving these stories to me, telling me to do these things. And like you said, I act as a conduit. Um, so just given, just listening to Toni Morrison tell that story when she was writing Beloved, that gave me the sense to really just start explaining to people that that's kind of how it works for me. Like everybody, when I write a play, the people are in front of me. You don't see them, but they are definitely in front of me. They're talking. They tell me what they're wearing. They tell me what they're doing. And all I do is write it down. And that's literally all I do. Like, I just write it down. Like, I try my best to try and structure things and to do the cute little, because I didn't go to school for writing, right? So I try to do this little structure thing that they tell us to do about having the outline and all that kind of stuff. But it just doesn't work for me that way. The way that writing works for me is literally I'll just start seeing people saying things, talking about what they want to do. They give me their story, and I just literally just hammer it out on the, on the, on the laptop. Sometimes I write some things down that they'll tell me that they want, you know, and they come and they go. Mm. They come and they go. So I said I had to say this. The literary light worker is really about um, it's gonna be something because I love to read. And not only do I love to read, but I love to talk about what I get from my reading. You know, I love to, I love to talk about the themes that I see in readings and everything. So the literary light worker is really going to be something that is going to give you more of my mind and, and my thinking process uh, about art and about writing and about the world. That's really what the literary light worker is. And I'm going to try my best to connect it to things I've read. <clears throat> That's pretty much what it is. It's going to be me connecting the things that I talk about with what I've read. Like I might take an article, a journal article or something, because I actually read journal articles like I'm still in college. I'm weird that way. Like I still be all up in the journal articles. I got a friend of mine that actually worked in the college and I use his credentials to log into the school, you know, school library so I can be up in there and find the journal articles and different stuff, you know what I'm saying? And so I still do scholarly journal articles and when I read them and everything, it makes me think about the larger uh, impact that what I've read has with the world and the literary light worker is gonna be doing that in a fun and engaging way. So I absolutely love it. Oh, the ancestors are so proud of you. Your ancestors so. are proud of you. Oh, so I want them to be. You know what and I mean? As we, to, and as we guide and slide and dive into, I just kind of feel that's like the, the spirit of 2021. 2020 was definitely a year of pivoting and challenge and a lot of inner growth if we took advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think 2021 is going to give us an opportunity again. Each year gives us opportunities uh, to further explore those things that we unearth. And I know that you have been on a creative journey, and I'm so looking forward to seeing what you release to the world. I am so yeah. looking forward to it. And now that we're into this more virtual space, um, all of us learning how to use technology and various platforms to communicate to the whole world as opposed to just our block or just our community or just our city. So yeah. I'm super excited. Now, for those who want to keep up with my soul sister, Shonda Kamaria, first and foremost, you want to go to her website, one of many, one of many, um, but her primary website is harkinshouse.net, that's yep. harkinshouse.net, which is named in honor of her father, 
Yeah. Last in 2019. Also, to keep up with her inner thoughts, be sure to follow her on Instagram at Chandra Kamaria. That's at Chandra Kamaria on Instagram. That is where you will get a chance to get to know her <laughs> in very deep, intimate, personal ways. Uh, she's a beautiful soul, someone that I deeply love, and I am so, so happy, Chandra. I love you too. Come on, the Christy Taylor Show. I just really appreciate you for having me. Thank you so much. Seriously. All right. And I'm so proud of us because we have remained within an hour because, you know, we could hey. for hours, for hours. We're going to have to actually possibly do something on Facebook Live where we just, you know, in addition to your literary light worker, uh, just to have a very um, deep conversation about all things. All right, then. Well, thank you so very much for part of the Christy Taylor show. Okay. And Thank you. And I guess that's our signal that it's time to go. Yeah, that's all right. I know our intentions and our resolve for this year is for creating more content and releasing it to the world. Um, that's what we were created and born to do. So I know I salute you and encourage you as I always have and always will uh, to keep creating in any way I can help. Anyway. Yeah. All right. love, you. love you too. And, and we thank you all for checking us out here on the Christy Taylor Show.